Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Jim Sandifer. Hello, Dr. Sandifer. It's wonderful to have you on Sandbox Stories. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. You've been a tremendous leader for us in optometry. Can you start by telling us about where you did your optometry studies? Uh, Southern College of Optometry. I graduated in 1965. And what was education like then? What was the, the arc of time you were in school? And, and how can you describe it to, to today? It was a three-year program then. I can tell you that I did not have one minute's education in pharmacology. I never got to look through a slit lamp in my whole time at Southern College of Optometry. I think they got their first slit lamp my senior year, and I never got to use it. So it has been a absolute sea change in the education and optometry in America. Yeah, by in the fact, time. I have said several times, we have changed the profession of optometry more in a shorter period of time than any healthcare profession in America. And I believe that. That's really interesting. And my, my friends, Chuck Brownlow and Vic Connors were 71 grads and they always talked about how that was right at that change point. And so it makes sense that Southern College got its slit lamps about the time you were getting done. Yeah, there were no soft lenses then. No soft lenses either. <laughs> and, and you sent me a note that said that you had founded the Gold Key Society. What was that about? Oh, that was in 1965 at Southern College of Optometry. There were actually five of us that came up with the idea and took it to the administration and they approved it. And so we formed it then. I have a certificate that shows me as a charter member of the Gold Key Society. And I understand it has flourished since then. It's in all of the optometry schools, I believe. And, you know, it's kind of a big deal now. Wow, uh, that's tremendous. Uh, you were in practice for quite a few number of years. How long and then when did you leave practice? I left my, the last time I saw patients was in 2005. Um, I graduated in 65 and started practicing then. So, uh, you know, 45 years or so. Was it a solo practice? I got out of school and went into practice with my uncle who was practicing, uh, had been practicing for a number of years. I thought I would be there for my entire career didn't work out that way. I wound up a few years later in a small town where I am now, Oakdale, Louisiana, population 6,000. And that's really what I preferred to do. And so I opened my practice cold here and just grew it over the years. And Oakdale has been very good to me and optometry has been very good to me. What was it like in your career coming out without having used a slit lamp at school and then going through these constant changes in optometry, how, how often did you have to reinvent yourself as an optometrist? Well, it was a continuing process. When, when I got out of school, all we did was refract and sell eyeglasses and fit contact lenses. 
I have an old document from the Optometry Association of Louisiana that has a suggested fee schedule and the fee for refraction was $5. And that's what we were operating on when I got out. Of course, I had to buy a slit lamp and learn to use it myself. Um, when therapeutics came out, I had to study at home to pass the TMOD exam. Um, so it was really self-education. It wasn't just me, all of us in my class, you know, and, and, and for a number of years thereafter, I had to become self-educated in order, as I said, no education in pharmacology whatsoever. So we had to learn when we passed the DPA laws and then even more when we passed the TPA laws. So uh, it's been a journey. What were the years of the DPA and TPA laws in Louisiana, roughly? We passed our DPA law in 1975. We were actually the third state to pass the law, but AOA has us listed as number five because Two other states passed laws and their governor signed it before our governor did. So, but 1975, we passed therapeutics in about 83 and it wasn't all complete therapeutics. So we had to go back a couple of times to add controlled substances and add oral medications and that kind of thing. Uh, so it was a process over a number of years. What do you tell younger optometrists who don't understand what it was like to be opposed on simply getting the opportunity to dilate a pupil? It's hard to make them understand. Um, they come out of school now with a complete education in all aspects of medical optometry. And of course we had none of that. Um, they don't understand how the ophthalmologist fought us every step of the way. Um, when we passed our DPA law, for example, uh, when it got to the floor of the Senate, the state senator who was introducing the bill, it was a House bill, so it came to the Senate, happened to be my senator and he was an MD. Um, as he was at the podium on the floor of the Senate presenting the bill to the Senate before the vote, an ophthalmologist in the audience started yelling and screaming at him and the president of the Senate had the sergeant arm remove the guy physically and I believe they passed a resolution never allowing him back in the Senate again. That's how emotional the whole thing was during those days. And, and it was that way every time we passed, tried to pass a bill. And all of you that went through that process of getting that ongoing education and reaffirming to the patients that you serve that pharmaceuticals and diagnostic and then therapeutic purposes were something in your purview I'll bet there was a great deal of pride in your cohort of people going through saying, we have this, we've got this. Was it prideful? Absolutely, still is. Um, when we passed our exclusive law in 2014, man, I just swell up with emotion thinking about it, even to this day. Hell of an accomplishment, I can tell you that. Well, let's, let's shift to that. You got a call out of the blue in the 90s to become the executive director of the Louisiana Optometric Association. What was that like? Well, I had sold my practice in 1996 and I was working a couple of days a week for the doctor who bought it when I got a call out of the blue asking me to be the executive director. Well, I had no idea what an executive director was even. So I said, well, I, I can't do that, but I'll help you out. And so I started helping them out. And of course, one thing led to another and ultimately it evolved into being the executive director. Um, 
I can tell you there was no chance of me failing as executive director because when I started off, we didn't even have a roster of members. We didn't know who'd paid dues. Um, so everything I did made it better, you know? Um, wow, that's really I'm interesting. extremely proud of our association now. All the things that all the doctors have done over the years in passing these legislative bills and all, um, we just have got a terrific bunch of folks down here. Listen, Optometric Association executives are really impressive people across the board. Was it a unique advantage in any way or disadvantage to be an optometrist in that role? I think it's an advantage. Um, you know, and there have been several of them throughout the years in America, execs who were ODs, and I do think it's an advantage just because you understand the profession so well and you understand the forces that oppose you, um, I think, better. So, uh, yes, I think it was a good advantage. And, and I suppose that when you gather as optometric execs or have, we, we someday will be back together at national meetings, you've been a good resource for your fellow execs because of your optometric background. You, you just, you have both sides, right? I think that's true, yes. And because I've been the exec for so long now, it's been over 20 years. So that experience, I think, helps uh, my colleagues when they, you know, have questions and all. You are really proud of your accomplishments and you should be. And you just mentioned the exclusive law. You described that as your most valued accomplishment. Can you please try to help us understand what an exclusive law is? Yes. Most state laws, optometry laws, define what optometry is or what optometry can do. That's an inclusive law. It includes all of the things that optometry is and that optometry can do. Well, of course, that's a finite number. An exclusive law, on the other hand, defines optometry as the diagnosis and treatment of diseases and disorders of the eye and its adnexa, except for, and it lists those exceptions. Those are excluded from the practice of optometry. We have 22 items in our law that are excluded from the practice of optometry. Everything else is ours. Every new product that comes out, every new procedure that comes out, it's automatically ours if it's not one of those 22. So we don't have to go back to the legislature every time a new procedure comes out or every time a new product comes out, we are done. Those 22 things are the only things we can't do. So the, the future is ours. Would you see your association whittling the 22 down where maybe there are one or three or seven of those that you think politically had to be added to the exclude list that you could ultimately see the profession overturning? I think we can eliminate some of those in the future, but I can tell you at this point, I don't see a need for us to do it. Those 22 things are such as things like no surgery under general anesthesia, can't remove an eye from a human, cannot do retinal surgery, cannot do retrobulbar injections. Those are uh, the, the 22 things are mostly things that uh, even looking into the future, I'm not sure how many of them, if any, we're gonna need in the foreseeable future. That's really interesting. So when you talk about it being an advantage today going forward, it's to your point, if something comes along that is, I guess I would say as taught, what is the, what is your thought about what is included? You say everything is, but 
how do your how do you and your your board and your leaders in Louisiana look at what might be considered optometric? Uh, is it about what's taught in schools? How do you define that? Well, personally, as taught scares me. I just told you about my education at SCO. If I if I could only do what I was taught, <laughs> I'd be hamstrung badly. So uh, that term kind of scares me. Uh, again, if your law says that the practice of optometry includes the diagnosis and treatment of diseases and disorders of the eye, that's pretty universal. Uh, that tells you you can do everything, again, except for the procedures that might be excluded. And I think that's the goal that every state should strive for. Uh, point well taken. Uh, let's talk about optometry in general. Given your um, time in the profession, do you feel like we've missed any great opportunity to advance that you wish we'd come back to it? Or, or is, it, is it not missed yet? I don't think we've missed opportunities, and I hate to keep harping on the exclusive thing, but I think that's the next opportunity for all of the states is to get their law changed so that it allows them to do the things that we need to do as a profession in the future. So uh, reflecting back to the 2000s, you were a tremendous supporter of AOA's infancy program. Do you think that that program has met its expectations down at the clinic level yet? Uh, unfortunately, I don't, Scott. I think the enthusiasm and, and the participation in the program seems to have gone downward. And I think that's a terrible shame. I thought that was a huge, great program for optometry. Not only did it save children's lives, but it certainly shone a bright light on the profession of optometry. I thought it was a wonderful opportunity and, I, and I'm, I'm disappointed that we haven't really embraced it more. I'm sure you join me in calling on our friends and our AOA leaders to you know, make the effort that is necessary to drive it. Fortunately, it's been under the stewardship of, of good folks like Dr. Bubba Steele and, and I hope that um, those that move up into the profession and, and replace us over time, think about what you said is that the profound power of it can still be grabbed. I'm, I'm glad to get your words. What is the biggest threat to optometry in the next five or 10 years, in your opinion? Three things, the internet, the internet, and the internet. Tell um, me more. A couple of years ago, I read that the fastest growing segment of the optical industry in America was people buying glasses from their home on the internet. That is a huge consideration for the profession of optometry. And refractions online, those two things are not gonna go away. And in my opinion, they're only going to grow. Um, I think it may be difficult in the future for optometrists to make a living selling eyeglasses and contact lenses. So they've got to go somewhere else. And that somewhere else has to be in medical optometry. Um, all of those things on the internet are going to impact the profession more and more as each year goes by. And here we go again, but that's why the states need to have an exclusive law so they can participate completely in medical optometry in the future. Have you guys wrangled at Louisiana with the teleoptometry approach? Uh, do you find it's something that gives optometry a chance to see more patients or do you find it threatening as well? Well, 
it really doesn't matter now whether it's threatening or an opportunity because it's going to happen. Um, and yes, we are dealing with it. Our, our licensing board is in the process right now of promulgating rules to address that so that it's in the best interest of the patient and in the best interest of the profession. But it's here to stay. I'm absolutely certain of that. So um, I, I think I see an LSU cap on your head. Are, are you a football fan? Yeah, big LSU fan. All right. I'm sorry like they had a down last year. year's football season, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, with your coach, you've got good chances ahead of you. You mentioned that you've had your fair share of surgeries. Do you feel like you're the $6 million man? <laughs> well, maybe so. I've had five in the last year, and I've had a total of 25 surgeries under general anesthesia in my life. So I'm pretty beat up at this point. <laughs> well, you, you sound and look great. You, you've been able to enjoy something that you described as a new camp on a private lake in Woodlands. It sounds wonderful. What is it like? Uh, I own about 175 acres of woods and swamp here in Louisiana and has a 10 acre natural lake on it. And we just built a new, very nice camp there. And we are enjoying it immensely. We probably spend three to four days every week at the camp and probably going to spend more than that in the near future. I hope so. <laughs> so you're still working hard. Do you have a, a horizon of how long you'll continue to do this work or is it not yet determined? I'm still the executive director of the Optometry Association of Louisiana. I'm also on the licensing board. Uh, I've been on the board on, over 40 years now. I'm the secretary of the board. So I run the business of both of those entities out of the same office here in the little town of Oakdale. Um, I'm still enjoying it. I'm going to keep going until they fire me or I can't do it anymore. <laughs> oh, bless you. I, that is the way that optometry should be thinking about itself and optometrists should be thinking about themselves as there's a continuum of delivery of, of support to the profession and come in many different ways. Let's finish up our conversation by going back to your passion. So because you are an executive director and you benefited as an optometrist in practice from how organized optometry did what it did, could you give a pitch to the audience about the importance of volunteering for optometry? Well, Sandifer's adage in Louisiana is, nothing good ever happens for the profession of optometry except because of the association. Nothing good ever happens for the profession of optometry except because of the association. And I believe that's true. We wouldn't have accomplished the things we've accomplished without it. There's no question about that. And I can't tell, you know, and, and, and the, the problems that we have are shifting more to the federal level than the state level than they have been in the past. So it's even more important now to belong to the AOA than it was 20 years ago. Um, and I am a strong, passionate supporter of both the state association and the AOA. And step one is providing your dues. Are, are you having any trouble with folks um, stepping up to do sort of board of directors work in Louisiana? I think that there's a little bit of a volunteer crisis in all types of organizations. Um, how are you guys doing? Well, we haven't had a problem having people step up into leadership positions. We have a problem, as I'm guessing most associations do, with people paying their dues and becoming members. Our membership level is at about 70%, which is pretty good, but it ought to be 
It absolutely ought to be 100%. But that's the nature of the business, I guess. And I'm sure from the AOA PAC level down to the state level, the other thing that members are struggling with participating in is contributing dollars and uh, sort of time to the political process because politics has become so charged. Um, it's a part of it, isn't it? Can you help everybody understand how, even if they're not political, how our future is sort of determined by the political process? It's absolutely essential. Everything that we do and have is determined by people in government, everything. And so it's important that we have influence in government. And the only way you do that, or the most important way you do that is by contributing to your association and your national association to allow them to have the funds to enable their legislative effort. Um, we asked all of our members to contribute a certain amount each year to our fund um, in order for us to defend what we have. And as I said, the shift is, is going towards the federal level and the AOA needs that money because it's, it's even more critical on the federal level than it is on the state level. Uh, bless that. And I guess last question, uh, tell me about your family. Do you have any grandkids or anybody that uh, keep you busy right now? I have two children, seven grandkids and one great grandchild actually. Um, and yes, my grandkids enjoy our camp and our property just like I do, and I love being there with them. Are they fishers like you? Yes, sir. Fishermen and hunters, both the boys and the girls. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, Dr. Jim Sandifer, you've been a longtime friend. It's been wonderful to reconnect, and I really appreciate conversation. I'm really grateful for all you've done for the profession. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it very much. Take care of yourself. Wash your hands. <laughs> and for the audience, thank you for attending. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.